Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that explores the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. I am Bert Dreher, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic, Molecular, and Interventional Radiology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Icon School of Medicine, as well as a past president of the Radiologic Society of North America. I cordially invite you to sit back and relax as we journey through chest and cardiac imaging through the lens of the field's leading experts. And now, from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York, it is my pleasure to introduce your hosts, Adam Bernheim and Michael Chalk. Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging. I am Adam Bernheim, and I'm joined as always by Mike Chung. Mike, how's your spring going? It's going great. We have a special guest today from New York University. We're privileged to have Dr. Jill Jacobs from NYU. She is a professor of radiology and chief of cardiac imaging at NYU, in addition to their director of safety. She completed her MD at Thomas Jefferson University, followed by a radiology residency at Hartford Hospital, and a fellowship in cross-sectional imaging at University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Jacobs then continued as staff at University of Pennsylvania until 2001, when she came to NYU, where she has been ever since. She is a past president of NASCI and is the immediate past chair of the CVRI Council of the American Heart Association. She is also a fellow of the American Heart Association, NASCI, SCBTMRI, the Society of Abdominal Imaging, and SECT. In addition, Dr. Jacobs has a Master of Science in Healthcare Quality and Safety Imaging, and her primary interests, including her research interests, are focused on cardiac CT. It's an honor to have you today with us, Dr. Jacobs. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, Dr. Jacobs, welcome. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background, where you are from, uh, how you got into medicine and radiology, and what drew you specifically to cardiac imaging? Sure. Well, I grew up in a very small town in New Jersey, Phillipsburg, New Jersey. And when I grew up, it was actually um, mostly dairy farms. It was a really beautiful part of New Jersey, you know, the actual garden state part of the garden state. So I grew up in a small town and my father was an old time general practitioner there. And he used to drag my brother and sister and I on house calls with him, bribing us to get ice cream along the way. And we'd sit in the car while he was doing house calls. And then he uh, became a family practitioner. So my whole childhood, I was in the small town and people would come up to me and tell me how wonderful my dad was and he saved their lives and he helped a family that was sick. And, and so I was really kind of attuned to what medicine could do for people and shape lives. And I was always attracted to it. And so I don't remember ever um, making the decision to go into medicine, but I never really wanted to do anything else. So I just kind of presumed that's what would happen and ended up going to medical school, did a bunch of different rotations. And what I found in medical school is, you know, so much of what you choose is influenced by who you're on rotations with. And so I was on a rotation with a uh, surgeon 
Gerald Marks, who was amazing. And he always had all these fun European people coming and visiting and he was into art and it was a really fun rotation. So I thought, all right, this is it. I'm going to be a surgeon when I grow up and was convinced I was going to do colorectal surgery for a long time. And then ended up doing a radiology rotation fairly late in the course of things and fell in love with it and thought, all right, I'll be an interventional radiologist because I'll still get to kind of do some surgical stuff. And then eventually fell in love with cross-sectional imaging. So that's where I ended up and loved cross-sectional imaging and did that basically my entire career at University of Pennsylvania until I was recruited to go to NYU. I worked with two great people, oh, many great people at University of Pennsylvania, one of whom was Robert Grossman, who's now the CEO of NYU Langone Health and dean of the newly named Grossman Medical School. And at that time, he was section chief of neuro, and he eventually became the chief of radiology at NYU. And I worked with Bernie Birnbaum, who was the vice chair of radiology at the time, and then became chief of operations at NYU. And so they eventually recruited me in 2001 to go to NYU. And Bob knew that when I was at University of Pennsylvania, I was very involved with vascular imaging. I really liked doing vascular imaging. So he called me into his office one day and he said, you know, we're going to start a cardiac CT program and I really want you to start it and to do it. And I hadn't done any cardiac imaging at that point. So he was very nice, sent me to Erasmus Medical Center in the Netherlands. And I learned from some great people there, Filippo Cratimertieri, who's a radiologist, and Nico Millet, who's a cardiologist. And then after that, I went to Cleveland Clinic and spent a couple of weeks learning from Arthur Stillman and Rick White, and then came back and started the cardiac CT program at NYU. That's a fascinating pathway. As an expert in cardiac imaging, I would say that most cardiac imagers also have training in thoracic imaging, but your background, as you mentioned, is more in cross-sectional and actually abdominal imaging. Are there ways that your abdominal imaging expertise has helped you be a better cardiac imager? Well, I think when I was on abdominal imaging, I was very involved in CT. I did both CT and ultrasound, but on the CT side of things, I was very involved in protocols and radiation protection and trying to adapt protocols to make sure that we got the best imaging with the least radiation dose possible. And the way that Penn was set up, the abdominal imagers really did all the vascular imaging. So I did ultrasound vascular imaging and CT vascular imaging. And so I think that helped me really when I went to cardiac imaging because I was attuned to a lot of the vascular portion of cardiovascular imaging at that point. And it helped me, you know, know what to look for when I was developing cardiac protocols, trying to limit, again, radiation dose, trying to optimize quality. So now, even though vascular is still kind of under the purview of abdominal imaging at NYU, since I also do abdominal imaging, I'm allowed to do basically the, you know, entire abdomen and pelvis, including the cardiac portion of vascular imaging. So it's nice continuity you know, to be able to do all that. How long were you in the Netherlands for? And what was that experience like back in 01? And what was cardiac imaging like back then too? So the Netherlands were amazing. It was great. And Filippo and Nico were wonderful teachers. And I was, I have to tell you, pretty nervous when I went there because I hadn't done it. I knew I was going to come back and 
be the person to do it. And it was probably the only time in my career that I knew when I came back, I was the only one that was going to be doing it for a short while until we hired other staff. And pretty much the rest of my career, I had the comfort of knowing that if I saw a case and I didn't know what it was, I could always ask a colleague. So, I mean, I could ask people at other institutions and the mentors that I had along the way, but it was kind of a unique situation for me. So needless to say, I was extremely motivated to learn and I was there by myself. So I kind of spent day and night just reading and learning and watching and imaging. And it was, it was a great experience. Dr. Jacobs, could you tell us a little bit about the cardiac imaging section at NYU? Uh, how many staff are in your section and what are typical CT and MRI volumes like, as well as what is a typical case mix for a, for a day? Does your section do a significant amount of ED or emergency department cardiac CT? Currently, there are 10 of us that are doing cardiac imaging. And it's an interesting mix. We have two cardiologists who are currently working with us. We uh, had three briefly. The one who uh, left temporarily is a cardiologist who specializes in adult congenital imaging. And he actually left to build up his clinic a little more. His clinic was getting busy and so he couldn't stay with us, but we interface with him a lot and he sends us a lot of patients. The other two cardiologists, one of them is a specialist in pediatric congenital imaging. So he's amazing. He does CT and MR, both adult and pediatrics, but he's amazing with pediatric imaging. And he's a nice interface for us when they're doing congenital work between the surgeons and the imagers. And the other cardiologist does adult cardiology and works with us one day a week and reads independently. And then there are five people who do both chest imaging and cardiac imaging with us. And then one person, Leon Axel, who just does MR and is an amazing researcher on MR. And then I do a mix, as you know, of abdominal imaging and cardiac CT. In terms of volumes, I actually looked it up, and in 2019, we had done about 7,400 cases total, about 5,200 were CT, and about 2,200 were MR cases. In terms of daily volume on CT, we do probably between about 20 to 26 cases a day probably about anywhere from 10 to 13 are coronary CT angiograms, and then the rest are a mix of pulmonary vein cases and calcium scores. And on MR, I'd say the average is about seven to 10 cases a day and kind of the usual mix of, you know, viability, cardiomyopathy, cardiac masses, you know, shunt work, that kind of thing. In terms of the ED, it's variable. It seems to come in spurts. So some days we won't have any cases. I would say on average, we get one or two cases, probably somewhere in the order of about three to five cases uh, you know, through the week. And NYU is just multiple hospital sites. I don't know if anyone knows that. Are they doing cardiac imaging at many of these sites or is it just one primary hub where they are doing the cardiac imaging? Right. So we have a lot of outpatient offices. I work at the Tisch-based offices and our FPO-based office there. And that's where we do most of our imaging. The vast majority of our outpatient work is done at our FPO office at Tisch. Winthrop is now part of us and they're doing cardiac imaging there. I personally am not involved in reading cases there. I think that's done mostly by the cardiologists at that site. And the rest are kind of evolving. So those are the main sites where we do them. We do calcium scores at some places, but coronary CT angiograms are mostly done at those two sites right now. And does that volume on a typical day, does that also 
consist of vascular imaging, uh, CT and MR? No. So actually, it's interesting the way it's evolved, but the aorta cases and TAVR cases are read through the chest section. Um, our cardiac chest imagers read a lot of those cases. We do in the cardiac section, thoracic MRI, and then the rest of the vascular imaging, like runoffs and the abdominal vascular work, transplant work, all of that's done by abdominal imaging. So that's why I get to see it that way. And I guess I'll give a plug, but to any radiology residents out there who are looking for a cardiac and chest fellowship, those volumes are very, very impressive for a training program. So reach out to people like Jill Jacobs if you're interested. Absolutely. We're always looking for good people. Does NYU utilize FFRCT for uh, coronary CT cases? You know, it's interesting. We looked into doing it. And in the beginning, we didn't do it because of New York State reimbursement issues, which now aren't, don't seem to be so much of a problem. As you know, you need to contract. It's proprietary to a specific vendor. And so we were looking into it. We haven't finalized any contracts yet. And we're seeing, you know, where we're going to go with it at this point. But we haven't started using it yet. Terrific. Dr. Jacobs, you were a co-author on the original CADRADS publication. What was it like participating in the development of CADRADS? It was an amazing experience. It's really fun. You know, every time I work with, you know, people who are kind of experts in my field and colleagues uh, who I know and love, I, I have a good time working with them. You know, it's interesting that it was a mix of both cardiologists and radiologists. You know, one of the goals of CADRADS was to actually create a standardized method to be able to communicate the findings of coronary CT angiography and to facilitate decision making regarding management. And I think as radiologists, we're always a little bit reluctant to tell clinicians what to do after we do imaging. And so we had some interesting discussions at CADRADS because, you know, part of CADRADS is that you have a score based on the plaque and stenosis that you see. And then we're actually prescribing what we think is the proper way to manage these patients. And so I remember there was a lot of discussion at the time where radiologists were asking the cardiologists on the panel, do you think you know, clinicians are going to be offended by us doing this, especially cardiologists who really, you know, know how to manage their own patients. And I was surprised that the cardiologist said, no, you know, we really need to do this. This is really part of it. So it was an interesting process. And uh, I learned a lot about how other people are doing imaging at their places and what they typically would recommend. And it, it was a fun process. How do you incorporate CADRADS in daily practice at NYU? Do you start each impression with a CADRADS designation? We don't. And we actually kind of don't give the actual score, but we do give management directives. So we'll say, you know, we see this and then recommend either further functional imaging or we would recommend when we think a patient should go for conventional catheterization. So, but we don't actually give the, the CADRADS score at the time. A question I've never asked, I guess, past uh, guests who have been involved in writing these white papers or guidelines is, how does it even work logistically to get all these people from different institutions working on one paper? Do you gather in a central location? Is it all done through the internet, through email, over conference calls, multiple continuous conference calls? Yes, is the answer. <laughs> it depends. It depends on the paper and it depends on the group. Many of us know each other well and we often travel to the same conferences. So sometimes if there's a conference coming up, we'll have a brief meeting at a conference to start things off. Um, a lot of times it's done through email, you know, 
people have such little amount of free time now. And so we try and do things as efficiently as we can. So a lot of times we will get an email saying, you know, this is the purpose. This is how we're going to set it up. These are the components. And sometimes different people will be assigned to different components. And then we'll get together and have teleconferences and sort of summarize where we are in the process and how it's going. And then often you'll submit different sections of work, and then it's reviewed and re-reviewed. And then typically you'll have one or more teleconferences to discuss things, to offer different opinions. It typically will go out for edits, and then we'll come back and discuss the edits. So it's a process, definitely a process that takes a while, but it's interesting how, how it usually turns out very well. Are you satisfied with the reception and the level of adoption that CADRADS has received in these first few years? What are future directions for CADRADS and are forthcoming updated iterations likely? You know, I think CADRADS has been well accepted. I think like everything else, there are early adopters and late adopters. And and sometimes people don't actually use the scoring system, but they do look at the directives that we set up for, you know, what you would recommend in terms of management when you see certain findings. I think that there are going to be new iterations that are coming I think that the recent ischemia trial has kind of impacted people's thinking. As you know, um, Judith Hockman from NYU was the lead at that trial. And I'm not sure how familiar everyone is with it, but basically the findings of the ischemia trial uh, was that in patients with stable coronary artery disease, adding invasive procedures didn't really reduce the rate of uh, MACE of major major adverse uh, cardiac events compared to lifestyle changes, lifestyle modifications, and aggressive medical therapy. And that in patients with chest pain syndrome, on the other hand, and, and angina, heart procedures did improve symptoms better than just lifestyle modification and medicine alone. But the caveat of the ischemia trial was that they excluded patients who had left main disease. So it's interesting because a a lot of people at our institution now are doing coronaries on patients who probably have known coronary disease to see whether there is left main disease and to see whether they want to pursue just lifestyle modification and aggressive medical therapy. So I think that will ultimately impact the second iteration of CADRADS. And we'll see, you know, with future research what happens. There have been several papers looking at the efficacy of CADRADS and whether it's really working. And so far, it seems that it is. So that was that was good news. You authored a 2018 article in JCCT that examined coronary CT imaging in women. This was a consensus statement from the SCCT. Could you share with us a synopsis of this work? Sure. And that was also a, an interesting paper and process. And as you know, women and men are different, and that's true in um, cardiac disease also. Nearly 60% of women have sudden cardiac death without any symptoms. And post-infarction, their survival is worse for women than for men. The interesting thing that the literature also shows is that women have a higher prevalence of chest pain and diminished quality of life compared to men. And we know that plaque erosion is more common in women than in men. Overall, women also have a smaller plaque burden and less obstructive coronary artery disease than men. But despite that, they often have worse clinical outcomes. So that was all very interesting. And it kind of impacts cardiac imaging. One of the things that we want to try and do with women is to improve risk stratification 
and get women on statins and lifestyle um, modification and optimal medical therapy when they need it. And so the literature has shown that calcium scoring can really help to do that in women and that coronary CT angiography is very beneficial in women to detect not only the calcified plaque, but non-calcified plaque and to detect the morphologic features of plaque that can predict a higher risk. Um, such as, you know, uh, low plaque attenuation or positive remodeling, spotty calcification, and the napkin ring sign. Research has also shown that women who come into the emergency room with chest pain benefit from coronary CT angiography. They have a reduced length of stay compared to standard evaluation. So that's another great thing. And coronary CT angiography has a really high negative predictive value. So it's great a great way to exclude disease in women and in men also coming in through the emergency room. Dr. Jacobs, you have also served on the ACR appropriateness criteria panels for such indications as chronic chest pain with high probability of CAD to acute nonspecific chest pain for low probability of CAD. Similarly to working on uh, the guideline papers, what has it been like participating in creating ACR appropriateness criteria for these specific cardiac indications? Well, that's, that's also been a great experience. The ACR appropriateness criteria have been in existence over 20 years. And purpose of them, as I'm sure most people know, is to help guide imaging and treatment decisions uh, for a specific clinical condition um, and to try and make sure that the workup is also effective uh, economically. So the way it's done is that you work with a panel of physician experts from different medical specialties. So again, it's really nice to be able to collaborate with people who you know are are kind of experts in their field. These guidelines are done using a modified Delphi method. So you kind of go through the literature. It's all evidence-based. You look at the strength of the research projects that were done, um, and you kind of rate the strength of each research project that you're using for the guideline. And then you individually vote on appropriateness and then come back. There are different um, rating panels and you come back and look at how much of the um, panel came up with consensus recommendations. And then any recommendations where there were divergent votes kind of go through as a panel, you discuss why you think, you know, the rating should be what you thought. And then together as a team, you develop a consensus recommendation. So it's an interesting process for determining ultimately what the guideline will be. Sounds like a really interesting process to be part of. Yeah, you know, at this point, Dr. Jacobs, I'd like to just kind of zoom out for some perspective and take a 30,000 foot view of uh, cardiac imaging. And the next thing I'd love to ask you is sort of a a multi-part question just for some perspective. And maybe I'll start it off by asking you just what it's been like to experience the vast transformation of cardiac imaging over the course of your career. Oh, it's been amazing. So when I started out in residency, I'll never forget, they were just ripping out an old EMI scanner. Um, and when I look back at the images from the EMI scanner, it was incredible. Anyone could read anything on them. When I actually started in radiology, you know, we were still using actual x-rays that we would have to hang. You'd have to come in, you know, an hour early to hang the x-rays, get them in order. We'd have to look for the old films, which was always just torture because invariably some of the clinicians hid them in their lockers and you were trying to find them to compare. 
I have no idea, you know, on abdominal imaging, how we ever read bowel without scrolling through bowel. Like imagine you're looking for bowel obstruction, you'd have to kind of walk down the panel, your eye would traverse different panels. And so that alone, <laughs> having digital images and being able to scroll through them back and forth easily was, was a huge benefit. When I started cardiac imaging, we actually started on a 16 slice scanner. And again, I look back and think, how did I see anything on that? You know, now the minimum that we can use is a 64 slice. We're on our third generation of a dual source scanner now, and we've gotten, you know, very comfortable with the improved spatial and temporal resolution that we have now we've gotten spoiled. So just the technology itself has been amazing to see. And as you glance towards the future, how do you think the field will evolve? What do you think it will be like to be a cardiac imager in, in 10 or 15 years from now? Well, I think it's going to be an amazing thing to be a cardiac imager in the future. I mean, the, the technological improvements, they're getting better all the time. The scanners have better spatial and temporal resolution. I think that we'll routinely have incorporation of a way to perform functional imaging. I think there'll be improvements in SCAR and plaque imaging so that we'll be able to better tell what plaque composition is and actual amounts of scarring more quantitatively than we can now. Um, and I think there'll be better quantification of flow and shunts. I think the other thing that's exciting is that I think they're going to improve fusion of multimodality imaging. So PET-CT and PET-MR will improve. And I, you know, I think they're going to be doing MR-CT fusion in the future. I think molecular imaging will really impact the field and help us. And I think there'll be many more portable and miniaturized devices that we can use um, in the future to be able to image more people. And then lastly, I think, you know, artificial intelligence hopefully will help us all read more efficiently and, and have better and more accurate reads um, when we can use artificial intelligence to supplement what we're doing now. That certainly sounds like a remarkably exciting future to be part of. Do you have any advice you might like to share with young cardiac imagers or trainees out there who are interested in cardiac and chest imaging? Sure. I think, you know, the first thing is you have to really be passionate about what you do. So I would say, you know, if, if you love vascular imaging, you love looking at function and everything, cardiac is, a, is an amazing field for you. But in general, in radiology, I would say just find what it is that you're passionate about, because when you're really passionate about something, you, you do it well generally, and you are usually successful at something you're passionate about. And then I would just encourage people to be curious. You know, some of the research projects that I've done have evolved from questions that I've had when I've looked at images or I've looked at patterns and I don't understand what's going on. You know, if you question things, you often can come up with good research projects and really answer a lot of those questions. I would encourage people to also get very involved in the field. Uh, my motto is that you can only affect change if you're part of the process. So, you know, people often I hear people complaining, but they're not involved in the process. And so, you know, get involved, be part of the change, be part of the evolution of the field, be part of the future and be part of the, the progress of it. I would also encourage people to engage in lifelong learning. I mean, as, as you know, I, I did a master's of science in healthcare quality and safety management um, just a year ago, which was really interesting. It helps me with the position I have as director of safety. But a, a lot of my colleagues in the radiology department have done master's work in either management or business. Um, so 
it's really stimulating to um, to go back to school and to keep learning and taking courses. And so I encourage people to do that. And then lastly, I would say probably the hardest thing to do, but the most important thing to do is really to strive for a good work-life balance. We're all so busy now and the clinical work can be consuming and overwhelming. So it's important to realize, you know, it's your only life and make sure you you take time for your families, for your friends to do things that make you happy because that'll also make you more efficient and better when you are working. When I had to look back at this uh, through this process, the podcast, it made me realize how lucky I am to have gone into a field that I really love and um, to be able to see such a huge evolution in things over the short time that I've been part of it. I find it still really exciting. And I'm always amazed when I look at the images that we generate and you know how cool it is that we can do what we're doing now. So I really look forward to what the future is going to bring. Thank you so much, Dr. Jacobs. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners. We look forward to chatting with you next time. Thank you for listening to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that journeys through the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. We hope you have enjoyed listening and look forward to seeing you next time.